All right, so I'm here with Clinton from uh, Cura Digital Health Solutions. Am I saying that right? Yes. Okay. And uh, Clinton here is a neurosurgeon educated at John Hopkins who started this company. Uh, let's go, let's, let's start from your early beginning. So uh, what made you want to initially become a physician? Uh, I uh, had an experience very early on as a child, actually, a, a traumatic childhood experience. I was seven years old and my, my little brother and I were going outside to play on a early January morning. Uh, it was a beautiful day out. Uh, the snow and ice was melting and he went out to the back uh, to play with a tennis ball in the back of the house, bouncing off the back of the house. And, and uh, I went out to a bike ride. He wanted me to play with him and I, I was older brother. I, I wanted to do my own thing. I went on a bike ride. And long story short is he ended up drowning that day. And I remember coming back and my dad was carrying him up out of the water and I'm seeing this. Um, and I see like, it's a, a vivid, you know, video in my mind. I'm 45 now. So this was, you know, 38 years ago. Um, but I can still see in my mind, like this very vivid video, like, like watching a video of you know, even like the water dripping from his nose and just, you know, his lifeless body there. And the fire department came to work on him and, um, you know, they, they revived him, but, and, and, and nonetheless, he ended up passing, but that feeling of helplessness and standing by, but wanting to help, but not being able to help kind of drove me from that point. And so I, I went from there to being like 12 and 13, had a couple of friends that had like some um, a broken neck racing motorcycles. Um, and that experience from there, I, I knew that I wanted to do neurosurgery. And so I, I sounded like a fool sometimes times because I, I grew up on a horse farm I shoveled more horse manure than I know what to do with and uh, my family would when I would tell them I was going to be a neurosurgeon they'd be like yeah yeah sure everyone everyone's going to be a neurosurgeon right uh, when they're 12 and and so I looked like a fool for a long time until finally I didn't look like a fool anymore yeah well it's a, everybody always says it's not neurosurgery when something's not not difficult you know yeah, so, exactly. Or, or rocket science, right? Rocket science. Rocket yeah. science neurosurgery. Um, so, that, well, so, which leads me to my question. In order to be a neurosurgeon, do you have to be a genius? Oh, no, no. You just, you have to, to I mean, you don't have to be a genius to do anything in life. You have to work hard. Yeah. So work, hard work levels the playing field for everyone. Uh, being a genius makes it a little easier in a lot of ways for certain things and certain tasks and makes it more difficult in other ways. I, as, as a resident, um, I had a chief resident who was actually a rocket scientist first. Yeah. Uh, and then he decided he wanted to go back to school. So he, he was a rocket scientist from, uh, I, I believe MIT. Yes, that's right. And then Harvard for medical school and came back to residency at Hopkins and he, he was that kind of, you know, eclectic type individual who was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And he went into functional neurosurgery. So it's really looking at the function and yeah. rather than more the anatomical structure of the brain. Because yeah. mm -hmm. not to downplay a neurosurgeon, but a neurosurgeon is just like any mechanic. It's just for the, some of the more important parts of your body. But yeah. basically, you could be an auto mechanic, just the same. But this guy's not an auto mechanic. He's like the elon musk you know electric car which is a little bit more complicated on the inside than standard auto mechanics um but bottom line is yeah being smart helps you but being hard working levels the playing field 
Definitely. Um, I know, I know many, many very, very like intelligent people that just didn't make it or haven't, aren't doing anything much in life. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it is a benefit. It's like being tall in the NBA, but it doesn't mean everything. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah definitely. So, so then when did you decide to go from being a surgeon to running this company? So I kind of uh, evolved into it. During my time at Hopkins, I was entrepreneurial. Uh, I, uh, there was a relationship, relationship between uh, Kellogg School of Business mm-hmm. and Hopkins. And so they, uh, they had a program called uh, Business for Scientists. And so I, I did that for two years uh, and went to all their courses. It really, I didn't earn any degree from it or anything, but I, I attended you know, their courses every week for two years, my, my lab time. So neurosurgery is seven years, but two years is in the lab. So I did that. And during that time, I worked at the FDA as a clinical consultant. So I got to see a lot of the you know, business and entrepreneurship coming through the FDA at a more mature stage. Um, and then I took a, uh, an endonasal closure device from you know, impetus to uh, FDA at that time uh, in conjunction with lab work. So that, that was this, the you know, kind of the entrepreneurial beginnings. And then I actually left there for some, you know, family and personal decisions. I did not stay in academics, went out into regular private practice, but I still had this desire for entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, I do mission trips in Africa and ended up over there uh, on one of the trips uh, with this, with this young girl that had came uh, 30 hours from Somalia to Kajabi, Kenya. Um, so it, it's a very long trip. And she had a just massive brain tumors. One of the scariest surgeries I've ever done because I was so deep in this tuberculoma. And it was very, it's what's called caseating. So it, it really kind of comes out very easily, but it just leaves an empty space. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, she did amazingly well. I thought she would certainly have passed and not, you know, she didn't. She did beautifully well. But I wanted to follow up on her and so I ended up, you know, you know, getting the, the ideation going for a telemedicine company at that time. I, I knew telemedicine existed and digital health solutions uh, existed because of my time at Hopkins. We, I, I worked on it there in a, in a robotics lab using uh, remote robotics to be able to do different skull-based drilling remotely. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, got back into it. And then one thing to another led to you know the impetus and development of the of what was initially philanthropic that became a more for-profit endeavor taken seriously at first because i know like uh somebody speaking on the on the panel on the second day of of our conference is uh dr kavidar and he mentioned that people just like laughed him out of the room when he mentioned telemedicine initially um Mm -hmm. this guy is you know very established in academia as a Harvard professor, Harvard medical school professor. And people just didn't, it's very relevant. Like it's, it's so obvious how relevant it is now because of COVID mm-hmm. and all these things. Mm-hmm. But did you ever get that type of reaction? Like how are you going to do medicine? Like, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we still even have that. I, I'm assuming you could find that person even today. Cause I found them seven months ago. Last November, I was at a school uh, giving a, a presentation to the parents because we brought on a school as a contract for telemedicine services. And uh, we'd been to one and they, there was four showing. We went out again to the school and had 
the school arranged for parents on a back to school night. Um, and one of the physicians from the from the town showed up and he was a heckler. It's like he, he wanted to be there to be a heckler. Like, wh why are you doing this? You're taking away business from small town physicians because this is in a rural area. Yeah. Um, the idea is to give healthcare access to children while they're in school so that they don't have to leave school. So their parents don't have to leave work to get the kid in school, you know, but not necessarily take away from the, the regular doctor experience. Anyway, he comes in and he's like, well, how are you going to look in their ear? How are you going to listen to them? And little did he know as a very experienced, um, uh, well-trained physician who's nearing the end of his career. And I'm like, we're going to look in their ear with the thing called an otoscope, just like you use in your office, except this one is, Bluetooth otoscope that allows you to save a picture rather than just seeing it your one time. And it'll upload to the system automatically under that patient's name and it'll date and timestamp it. And, you know, all this um, information that he just, he didn't have a grasp on it and an understanding. It's, it's a true feeling. It's not just him though. It goes further than that. You'll go to other physicians, which are middle aged physicians, you know, 35 to 45. You're 35 and younger ones are more into telemedicine, but they don't necessarily even know it. They're like, how do I do an exam? I, I trained a resident who worked for us, moonlighting. So she's 29. She's like, how do I do an exam? And I'm like, well, you say, I saw the patient. They were awake, alert, interactive. They appeared well. They had a good chest rise. They had good skin color and turgor. They could sit and stand without difficulty. Uh, they had pain when they self-palpated their own abdomen. Like, do you have to push on their abdomen or could the patient like, you know, push on their abdomen and say, Hey, it hurts right here, doc. Yeah. Um, makes so just really simple mindset change uh, that allows you to understand that you can get back to the fundamentals of medicine. So medicine at Hopkins, when they, you know, rounds were developed at Hopkins, like when you go rounding, they, that's yeah. a Hopkins term. Um, when they talked about medicine back in the twenties and thirties, um, the history was 90% of an exam and 90% of the interaction was talking to someone and having that. And then now the medicine of today is like this. You know, the doctor's here typing on a computer. Yeah. Like, and, they, and they look back to the patient like, oh, how you doing? Okay, I'm going back to the computer typing. I think, I think every patient has experienced that at one point. Yeah. It's like impossible not to experience that what you're talking so about. It's just, I think it's this interest is very interesting and fascinating to me how this, the pendulum of the emotional connection is going to swing from the doctor that was doing house calls. Yeah. Back, uh, you know, when house calls existed, uh, still some doctors will do house calls. I've done some myself and it's a very fascinating thing to show up on someone's door. And they're like, they're really taken aback. Like you knock on their door and, and answer yeah. their doctor. Yeah. Uh, but then to, to establish the level of intimacy that you get when you're, maybe, maybe I am typing right now, you don't know I'm typing, right? But I'm looking here and I'm on the keyboard. Yeah. Uh, versus this turning your back thing. But now you've got this facial contact and eye contact uh, that raises the level of intimacy of the relationship of that doctor-patient relationship back to where it kind of really should be when you actually engage the patient rather than engage your keyboard looking yeah. away from them. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, I love that. Uh, yeah, I think what, what I, what I recognize is that, you know, my dad, you know, got sick at one point. Um, it, it's still sick to this day, but, um, there was just a lot of just, uh, challenges that he went through going through the healthcare system that mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it, most people should go through. And I feel like 
healthcare these days is not completely patient centered. It's more like let's the insurance companies like trying to back out of paying, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, procedures or whatever the case may be. And there's so many things that convolute the, the, the system that it, it just, it really kills a lot of people. It doesn't just hurt people. It kills yeah. people. Mm-hmm. The convoluted, you know, situation that we're in. Um, and so you feel that, do you feel just like indirectly you save lives because of your approach? Um, I mean, I think, you know, saving lives in the approach of the delivery, the delivery of care can save lives and make a difference. Yeah. The approach to the patient of being, you definitely save lives in establishing a, a trust in an intimate relationship. So the one thing I can relate it to easiest is a cancer patient. Right. So I do neuro-oncology. And so you can spend about three minutes with a cancer patient and have a more intimate relationship with them than you could with a date on two or three dates. Right. True. They, you, they trust you. Uh, you trust them. And, and it took three minutes. Or, or, or that trust wasn't established in that three minutes and then they didn't get care by you. Uh, right, right, on. right. Um, and then that trust allows you to be able to do things. I mean, you're asking a lot of people, like in a cancer situation, you're asking a whole lot of people. And you're asking people to understand how to work on a transmission, but no one does, right? Unless you've done that. But they kind of want to know a little bit and they want to, you have to relay this trust and hand off this trust that you, you know what you're, they're doing. And you're going to ask just a, a, a tremendous burden upon the patient and their family that they have to go through to get through some of these treatments and, and disease processes and even simpler things though. I mean, it's not easy to be a type one diabetic. That's, I mean, you know, if you're on an insulin pump and you're checking yeah. your sugars all the time, you know, it's, and you take I, it for granted, but it's it, like the gateway to every other disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I, I personally think I'm not a doctor, right. But um, yeah. like, I just feel that it's a gateway to every other disease, kidney failure, potentially heart yeah. problems all these things yeah uh, amputations yeah. you know poor, poor circulation diabetic retinopathy but it's not taken seriously often now for a long time you know people think oh it's just diabetes you know diabetes is a is a massive cause of mortality morbidity and it's a massive contribution to overall healthcare dollar spend yeah Di- diabetes is one of the areas within uh digital health that you can see a, a tremendous advantage of engaging people through group sessions, sessions with nutritionists, doctors, other areas that um, would go missed if you were doing it the old way they used to do it. There's, there's full programs built around this, but the old way was, Hey, come to the YMCA on Tuesday morning. Uh, the new way is, you know, log in on your phone and we're going to go through some nutritional stuff. Right. Definitely. Um, do you think, uh, some providers, you you mentioned before that the heckler he was saying, "Oh, you're going to take business away from from doctors." Do you think some providers feel extremely threatened by this telemedicine concept and want to prevent it in some way? Um, they do, yeah. They do. I and I, I think they should. Providers will get completely railroaded if they don't get on. If they don't get on the train, it's going to run them over or they're going to be trying to get on while it's moving and they're going to fall underneath it and get their head chopped off. I agree. A hundred percent. 
There's, but there's a certain segment of the population that just will ignore reality, completely ignore it. Just yeah, like they'll just they'll dismiss it. They'll say it's not. They don't take it seriously. I mean, why do you think yeah. that? It's like? it's, you know, physicians in general are late adopters. They want proven technology. They want data. They want to you know you know have that, and then they don't they don't want to change. You know, we, none of us want to change, right? We we all get comfortable to some degree or another you know plenty of entrepreneurs never want change and they always want something new and fresh and keep energy going but um people get comfortable and they don't want to change and, and so they feel where they are and then they don't appreciate or take the time to understand that the innovation is making their life easier right and they get far enough down the line that they're and then they get left behind that's that's the you know the trains already started moving and they're like oh yeah that, that's a cool looking train it's time and then Wait a second. I like that train. I want to get on it, and now it's too too late. And you'll see that happen in the in you're seeing it happen already. There's the large you know telemedicine groups that are they first get in through the employer, and then through the payer, and then uh, through direct consumer uh, markets and hospital channels. And the next thing you know, you know, the patient has. A more convenient option, a readily available option, an option that's available at you know 8 p.m. on a Saturday evening. Yeah. Um, and their family doctor is not available at 8 p.m. on Saturday evening. Um, and that's it's gonna it's gonna decentralize healthcare. And I think it's a great thing. Decentralized care. Uh, we always talk about how everyone oh you need to go to the same doctor because they know you right. Mm. Um, I, I would argue that you need to have your healthcare organized in a digital structure that knows you mm. so that any professional provider can look into that structure, i.e. a digital healthcare platform, and now they know you too. And so that your care can be delivered at the right time in the right place rather than waiting until Tuesday morning for your appointment next Tuesday. Is your, is your technology imbued with artificial intelligence? We're not, we don't have any artificial intelligence right now. We have a roadmap that is part of our health event pathway. Wow. And we'll, we have, uh, we, we had 22, 23 medical students uh, last fall. They worked for about three months. Um, I, we didn't spend too much on We paid like $15,000, all of them together for that time, mm -hmm. to go through a database that's uh, uh, LOINC and ICD-10 mm -hmm. codes and diagnoses. There's uh, a little over 7,200 of those. And we have all that structure that took a, you know, the manual entry to plug in positive symptoms, negative symptoms, medications associated with those diagnoses, surgeries associated with those diagnoses, negative and positive risk factors that we'll be using that uh, data set that we have to build out our chat bot to help drive people down this ultimate artificial intelligence pathway uh, that we, we call a health event pathway that will drive them to a provider visit. Mm. And that, that, that's where I think the decentralized delivery of healthcare will ultimately be better than your own provider. Uh, and it's, I, it's a little bit of a bold statement, and I kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that, uh, to say that it could be better okay. than your own provider. Like, how can someone be better than my family medicine doctor of 40 years? They know me better than anyone. They know my healthcare yeah. problems. But the simple fact of the matter is your family medicine doctor of 40 years can't be there for every single event you have. They can't be in your home to identify that your blood pressure was, you know, out of whack at, you know, Sunday morning or that you went into AFib 
that you detected on your remote patient monitoring device. Um, and it's just, they, they can't do that. So this decentralized data center, I believe will be the ultimate win in value delivery across uh, the healthcare delivery you know, ecosystem that will deliver tremendous value. So I kind of want to talk about business practice and, and actually let's start with some of the challenges you had to overcome to start this company. So obviously every, every uh, entrepreneur goes through this stage of extreme difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Having yeah. extreme difficulty, then you're probably, you should be pretty nervous because it's probably going to happen at some point, right? Um, mm -hmm. what, what challenges have you overcome to get to this point? So we've, we started with a, with a budget and uh, largely that's been driven by my income. So I I'm basically initially was feeding the baby for a long time from working uh, and, and which in the beginning, it, it just my own work changed a little bit. In the very beginning, in the early uh, portion of the software development lifecycle, I, I was involved at a good times, late evening. You know, you know, we could do things from 11 to two in the morning and it worked well and I could keep working. But as we moved further and further along, it required more and more business hour time, more and more business development. And so the, the financial burdens shifted. Uh, there are other investors uh, that are, have joined in so far through convertible notes. Um, we looked at a structure initially from a physician standpoint, which would be easier to bring on finances. You could look like a company called Fruit Street. You may know them, but they bring on physician investors. And it's in low, low, low uh, investments, 25, 50,000, 75,000. Uh, those are fairly easy to acquire, but then you complicate your ecosystem and the regulatory um, burden that comes in when you have physician owners complicates the issue. Um, but we, we've gotten some good breaks. Uh, we started in 2018 um, early and then had a deliverable product in the summer of 19, got a contract in September that got some revenue going, um, still didn't cover our burn. Uh, started covering about a third of our burn and then a half of our burn. And then um, January of now 2020, we had the remote patient monitoring looking like we were going to be ready to go. And then COVID hit. Okay. Uh, but, and then COVID hit and COVID helped one of our partners. We have a partner that has 43 hospital locations. And we started that pilot with them back in September. And then in in February, I was in uh, South Texas launching one more site, um, not knowing that COVID was really hitting yet, but COVID was on the lurk then. And then uh, COVID hit, COVID's made them realize that they need to expand further their telemedicine capability. So that's been a tremendous uh, impetus to, for, we're gonna grow with them, they're gonna grow with us um, in their telemedicine delivery. And then we launched and we went out to initially 22 locations and pruned back to the more productive locations with telemedicine visits on the ground and then COVID testing. And so through uh, April and May, we, we had an excellent couple of months. We did very well during those months, rel you know, relatively to where we are. We had, you know, uh, went from 80s, hundreds to 8,000 visits uh, in that month. Um, and then, you know, you set timelines in your head, like I'm going to, I'm going to go to this next 
it's like running. I think it's like an endurance runner. I'm going to make it to the, to the next milestone and the next target number. And then there I'm going to kind of reassess in my mind, am I going to keep running or not? And then that's, that's how this journey has been. There, there has been the time when I've had uh, double digits in my checking account and I'm talking about cents, <laughs> like, you know, and or negative, you know, you, you, when you're moving money back and forth, it's, it's an insane time. I'm not to, I don't want to feel sorry for myself because you know, there's no reason for that at all. But, you know, you think you're a neurosurgeon, you have a good job, you have, you know, good income, you can make, you know, you know, a million dollars a year or so, or a little bit more as a neurosurgeon, um, less if you're less busy. But, and I have like 36 cents in my bank account. What are you talking about? And, but that's, that's been reality for the last, you know, several months. I've had issues. I've had like challenges like that. I mean, um, you know, there, I mean, like, this was like five years ago, but I had a, 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 a time five years ago when I was going through like a lot of like personal issues. And uh, I had a period of time where I didn't have any money in my bank account. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't, I couldn't afford food for like three days. Yeah. I was living in a nice place. Like on the outside, it looked like, yeah. like doing well, but then um, I, I literally for three days, I had to eat like Costco samples for three days. Mm-hmm just cause I decided I want to go on this entrepreneurial journey. Cause I, I started in the traditional sense, you know, you know, going through school and uh, had a, you know, a, a good uh, major, you know, engineering, um, but didn't decide, I just couldn't be in a cubicle doing design work for a long time. You know, it just, it just didn't fit my personality. I'm more of an entrepreneur though. I'm very introverted, like very, very introverted. It may not seem like it, but I'm extreme. Like anyways, so, um, is there, is it, like, do you feel for yourself, do you feel like you're meant to be an entrepreneur? Like you can you, it's really hard to do anything other than be an entrepreneur. And, and I think being a neurosurgeon in a sense is being entrepreneurial too, because you have to, you're like the only person making all the decisions on a person's life. Right. Yeah. To some degree, I think the entrepreneurial spirit though is, is that, but to answer the first part of your question, I, I don't feel like I'm meant to be an entrepreneur by any means. I, you know, like following passion and delivering on that. And I, you know, maybe that's not a fair, fair answer to this statement because I do have this entrepreneurial spirit lurking in the background. It's always been there. And I always um, wanted to have, like, like you said, that independence of decision making. Um, but really the, the last, you know, now two and a half years, this, the passion has been, you know, working to develop a digital health platform that can change the way we deliver healthcare. Um, and I don't see myself, I, I think of serial entrepreneurs that their next best thing is when can they divest from this venture and make uh, a profit and make an impact so that they can then move on to the next one. And that's yeah. not my mindset. My mindset is when can I deliver the best value out of what we're working on right now? And I don't, I don't have a, I don't have an exit strategy. I love that. I mean, my exit strategy is to keep making a better, bigger company. Um, you know, of course, if you're talking to an investor and, and we do have in the back of our minds, we have exit strategy, we have exit milestones and like, what are we going to do? How are we going to set up the structure of the company to exit? Cause that's the reality. But in, in my, the forefront of my mind is the exit strategy is that we're going to acquire our biggest competitor. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think when, when you don't have that exit in mind all the time, 
um, when, when you're really just doing it because of the, of the passion you have for the business, then you, you tend to make better decisions, right? You tend to do yeah. what's right for the customers or the patients, as opposed to what's right for, you know, what's going to make you the most money. Um, okay. So if you're speaking to investors, so if you, if, if an investor is listening to this, what is, why should they invest in your company? Why is your company so attractive to invest into? Yeah. I mean, the, the fundamental reason of why our company is a worthwhile investment is the amount of uh, intellect and experience vested in the company right now. We have, uh, we're a digital health tech startup and a, and a medical professional group. So you'll see a lot of healthcare startups in, in, our, in our very spot and they're doing similar things. Uh, they lack the physician and professional business experience. Just, but they may make up for it in other areas. They're, you know, very, maybe they're more entrepreneurial minded or more uh, tech founded. Uh, but the, the experience we have in our team, we've got 50 years of healthcare experience. We've got 45 years of developmental experience. We've got three of our, our, of our devs are from, um, I'll just say their name. It's not a secret. It's Allscripts. Allscripts is a very large uh, healthcare EHR firm. And we have uh, three of their devs that, obviously have a deep experience in, you know, healthcare uh, tech development. And so that we're not just starting with devs that are, you know, know the development life cycle, but we're starting with devs that know the development life cycle of healthcare tech. Um, that and then and the passion. Um, everyone has passion. I, uh, I would argue that I have more passion. Like I know entrepreneurs have passion, right? Entre an entrepreneurial person is very passionate. And I, uh, I grew up on a horse farm. I was told by my anatomy teacher prior to medical school that I should go into another field because I wasn't cut out for medicine. I did it anyway. I scored the top of my class in the top of the country in the boards exam and then scored the top. Did you study really hard? Did you study harder than everyone else or did you? Oh, way harder. I studied way harder. I was not smarter than anyone else. And I'm not smart. And even today, I, I am definitely not smarter than, there's plenty of people smarter. And if the investor wants to find a smarter person, there's, there's hundreds of them out there that are smarter than I am. But they will be very hard pressed to find anyone who works harder yeah. uh, and is more committed. I've got two point, now it's about 2.2 million of my own money in this company. Um, and we're on a track that will we'll keep going you know, for, the, for the defined future without, without any outside money. Of course, we want outside money so that we can really launch and lift. Yeah. And we're, looking, we're excited about it. I'm looking forward to having a very happy investor. We're like, wow, that was a great investment. I'm glad I put my money there because I just got paid back you know, sixfold in you know, 30 I months. I think it will be a great investment. Um, you guys are post-revenue. So you guys, and I got to say, I, I, I've talked to a lot of people. Um, I've talked to other physicians. I've talked to uh, Harvard-educated MBAs. Um, you are very sophisticated in business, though you don't give yourself as much credit as uh, um, as you've given in the past <laughs> to me when you've spoken to me. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can tell. I can tell that you know what you're talking about with regards to business. You're very good with, I think, just in general, knowing the, the sales process, getting into hospitals and, and uh, providers. And um, what are your... What, what do you say regarding that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do, do you feel like your hard work really 
made you have that type of experience? You, you worked so hard that even though somebody that started in business like at 22 or 19, uh, you're at the same level as them almost, right? Or you are the same level yeah. as them. Yeah. You feel like it's just like you just work harder than everyone else and that's why you're at this level? Well, I mean, I think the, the working hard and, you know, not to take away from other people, other people work plenty hard too. Um, but I would, I would really say that I'm in the top, you know, 1% of the hard workers. There's a lot of us, right? There's, you know, there's a country of 300 million. There's a lot of that 1%. Uh, but I would say that I'm resting somewhere in that one top one or 2% of hard workers. And, and then just good fortune. I've had good fortune to, you know, the business experience at Hopkins, the FDA experience at Hopkins, which was a very business driven venture. And during that time, I consulted for companies as a FDA consultant uh, to their business structure and looking at pitfalls from the FDA perspective. And then in my own practice, I, I've been in private practice the whole time, first in, as a group practice and then as a private practice of my own. Um, and so you'll, you will find a, plenty of physicians and it's just the way the, the healthcare landscape is now that choose a different route in their employed physicians. And so they, they completely lack uh, not necessarily harm of their own or foul of their own, but they lack business sense. They have zero business sense. They're very bright physicians, but they just haven't been afforded the opportunity to need to understand the dollars and cents of running a business. It's really, really hard. <laughs> it's just extremely hard. And, you know, if you're, if you're, so if you're used to, you know, having a comfortable life, and then going into entrepreneurship, it's, it's not for everyone. It's not for the faint of heart, for sure. Yeah. Um, neither is being a physician. That's not for the faint of heart either. You know, yeah, they're both very hard. So in, in, in a lot of respects, there's a lot of parallels, right? Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we do, plenty of people do hard work in all different areas. And like, right now the the police being a cop i can't imagine the difficulty that that's horrible, facing them horrible. um you know look, the, the nurses look, and the doctors on the front line is absolutely in the er department so obviously you know there's some bad apples right in the police departments i agree um in every field there's bad apples right it's a mm -hmm. little bit more obvious in, in policing right mm -hmm. um but to say that you want to defund the police, who are you going to call? Like if something, mm -hmm. if you're getting robbed, who are you? That, this is what, that's what I don't understand at all. Who, if you're, if somebody is threatening to murder you, who are you going to call? If, if cr criminals have their, their, uh, um, their finger on the pulse of, of uh, policing, you know, they know when the yeah, police, yeah. you know, they know when the police aren't there. So yeah. mess with they that. Know how, how much time they have to be able to react and, Exactly. To, to their advantage. Exactly. Yes, people need to be trained in the police. People need to be trained more. They, they, we need to have a more stringent, uh, you know, qualification process for police mm -hmm. as well. I think, but you can't just get rid of them. And then, who are we going to attract if everyone's just doesn't respect them at all? Are we going to attract the best people after you know so much ridicule that they receive on a consistent basis? What do we do then? You know, yeah, it'd be very difficult. I can re relate that to medicine, and that's—I mean—that's—I've been founded in medicine for so long now. It's—it's—it's it's, it's hard for me to 
think, you know, outside that box initially, but, you know, there's a lot of people that go into medicine uh, with very well-intentioned, good hearts, and they're not jaded. I remember this, and I've, I've changed my tune some as well, and, I, and not that I've wanted to, but it's, it's happening, and I can feel it happening some. You know, you go into medicine because you want to help people. Um, and, and I'm sure police officers go in for the same reason. They go in because they want to help people. They want to serve. You know, people in the military, they go in, they want to serve. People in business go in because they want to be able to help people run a better business. And like, you know, uh, Rant, as we talked to him the other day, his story is fascinating. He, he shifted from an entertainment industry to helping entrepreneurs because it's this, just this exciting developmental process to see someone grow and achieve their goals. People like that. Um, and but if they lose the respect for doing that, it can make you become jaded quickly. So you lose the respect by various different ways. You get demoted, you get a lawsuit, you get transferred to another department or you're, someone overlooks or doesn't appreciate you. Some that may work or not work. And then all of a sudden people start questioning you as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. One of my um, heroes in you know, handling people and running a business is uh, the, the previous Disney world executive. And he, uh, it is a little appreciation goes a long way. Um, but if you strip someone of, if you fall below that threshold of appreciation, your entire organization falls apart. Totally. Wow. That's powerful. That's what he said. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really, really powerful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, once, once you start to stop appreciating people, they, they tend to not be as passionate about your business. Like, no one's ever going to care as much about your business as you will. That's what I, that's, yeah. but they'll care a lot less if you don't say thank you every once in a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. All right. so if uh, someone wants to get a hold of you, you know, that's listening to this podcast, how would they do so? Uh, they can reach me on uh, email is the easiest, and it's uh, my name. Uh, Clinton, C-L-I-N-T-O-N dot Baird, B-A-I-R-D at Cura, which is C-U-R-A dot com. Awesome.